you want to go and you've got several people that want to go, you better get signed up quick, okay? Make sure that you check out in the lobby after service. We'll have registration out there. If you turn tonight in your Bibles to Acts chapter 28, we'll pick up in verse 11 and our final study here in the book of Acts. And we find tonight that Paul finally makes it to Rome. Before we get into the study tonight, I want to just kind of now put this in perspective for you. The Apostle Paul, if you remember, the book of Acts has transpired now over a period uh, from everything that we've seen of more than 23 years. It's a long period of time. It goes all the way from his conversion to his early ministry trips the, the time that he spent now in this journey, if you remember, he spent almost two years being bounced back and forth between three very prominent people in King Herod and, and Agrippa and Festus, and then he's been put on trial and they couldn't find him guilty. And he cries out and says, well, I want to go to Rome. And the whole time, remember the promises, and the Lord stood by him. He's now had a journey of some three months, and during that three months, he's traveled the coast of, of the Asian continent. He's come across the Aegean Sea. He's now in the southern Mediterranean. He's shipwrecked on Malta. He's had all these things happen, which he'll actually record as he writes to the church at Corinth. He's now going to finally make it to Rome, the destination. And it was his desire all along to get there. But I want you to notice something. Man's plans and God's plans very often are not exactly the same. This is not how you and I would have planned, well, hey, I'm going to go to Rome. You know, we would have hopped on a straight ship that would have went from Caesarea Philippi and right across the southern Aegean and, and straight to the coast of Italy. That's how we would have done it. But God and His divine workings in our lives, which we don't often understand, allowed all kinds of heartache, a massive storm. He allows Him to be stranded and shipwrecked. And all along the way, not only is Paul being groomed and Paul being encouraged and Paul being built up, but he's practicing all of these things so that when he gets to Rome, he's ready. Don't discount the time that you spend in storm and shipwreck is having no value. Very often, it's the most valuable time that you have in your life while you're here on this earth. Because it's in that crucible, it's in that place in your life that you really have those lessons ingrained in a very, very deep and meaningful way. In a way that you're going to draw from for the rest of your life. Now you can easily see how the application is for us. Because those hardships that you've endured, those hardships which yet will come in your life, are not God forsaking you as so many believe and blame. So many people are caught up in, in heartache and, and woe of spirit because in essence they believe God's punishing them when things don't go right. They believe that maybe God somehow doesn't care when things don't come out the way that they had planned. And I would say to you very often, 
the disasters that we experience as humans actually are God's divine plan. They, they are the very things that God alone knows you need, or I need, or the church needs, or America needs. And so as we finish up, some of this chapter can almost seem anticlimactic. You're coming to the book and it's going to end very abruptly, and I believe there's a reason for that. I'll share it with you in a little bit. But as we now find Paul making this journey, he's going to go from Malta to Syracuse to Reglium. He's going to then go on to Petoli and then along the Appian Way up to three taverns and eventually on into Rome. What's going to happen is nothing short of miraculous because he's going to be imprisoned, but he's not going to get stuck in a prison. That's not the normal Roman way. And so it seems as though the length of period of time has kind of taken a little bit of the sting out of the initial charges, so much so that Paul is left, in essence, to his own devices under house arrest, which allows him to write the book of Philippians and the book of Ephesians and minister to people freely, and they can come and go. And even though, from a human perspective, he's been arrested, it's really God freeing him up to do exactly what God sends him to Italy to do. And so tonight, Paul finally makes it to Rome. Would you pray with me? Father God, as we draw to a close as our study in this amazing book, Lord, the Acts of the Apostles, Luke chapter 2, as we saw early on, as the Dr. Luke has been traveling with the Apostle Paul for a majority of this book. We're so grateful, Lord, for these encouraging words to us. Lord, many of us, uh, even today, maybe tonight, found out that we've been shipwrecked. Lord, maybe a storm is blowing our way. God, maybe we've been falsely accused. Or, Lord, there's something that's happened in our lives for which there's no real understanding that we have as to why. But we know, Lord, the who is behind all these things, and it's you. And so we pray that tonight as we study your word, Lord, as we commit it, into our minds and our hearts. We pray that you'd encourage us with it. Strengthen us, Lord. May we be like the Apostle Paul, speaking your truth with boldness, unhindered by the things of this world. And so, God, we bless you. We thank you for your word. And pray now that you'd impart your truths to us. We ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Picking up in verse 11 and there, and after three months we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers. Those twin brothers, we'll find out uh, shortly, were actually the two sons of Zeus. And so they had wintered there at the island and landing at Syracuse, they were there for three days. And of course, that's not, you know, upper state New York, that's uh, the island of Sicily. And so you know, the home of the Godfather, the Mafia. Um, and, and Sicily is a very, actually a very, very large island. And so uh, here as they land there, they don't spend the kind of time that they spent on Malta. They're basically there to reprovision the ship, which would have taken a while. And then they're going to move on to what is actually the, con- the continental tip uh, of the Italian peninsula. And, so, and from there they circled around and reached Regium. And after one day, uh, the south wind blew, and the next day they came to Petoli. So they've made it, in essence, in a couple of days, they've now made it about 300 miles. They are flying. 
they're zipping along. And it's interesting that when God has finished his preparatory work in your life, and you've been through the shipwreck, and you've been through the storm, it's amazing how often, as he's now going to take you exactly where he wants to use you, you find the smooth sailing. All of a sudden, the storms are silenced. All of a sudden, the shipwrecks are no longer happening. You just make it to where you're supposed to be. It is often in the delays that God does the work, and it's in the sunny sailing that God is basically getting you to that place that he's now going to use you. And so don't marvel at these things when they happen in your life. All of a sudden, just the skies open up and it's wonderful and sunny because God has a plan to now take you and use you. And there they found the brethren, and again, there were Christians there as well. And so truly the gospel has already gone out to some degree, and they're meeting Christians all along the way, and we were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we went towards Rome, and from there... When the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us from far off from the Appian Forum and the three inns. And so people now have heard, get this, this is crazy, this nutty, insane guy who used to be known as Saul of Tarsus, who has this miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus back in chapter 9, who's been under attack for years now whose life has stood out as a beacon to anyone who knows anything about him, who's, who's apparently whose reputation has made it 2,000 miles away from the coast of what is modern-day Lebanon all the way to the capital city of modern-day Italy, to Rome, makes it all the way there to the center of the world's power at the time. One guy doing exactly what God told him to do, without fear, without reservation, with all boldness, make such an impact on the known world that people from that capital city now are coming to greet him as he's arrested and actually brought into Rome. God can use anybody, anytime, anywhere, any place who is surrendered to him and who has no reservation about doing exactly what God's called you to do. And they came to meet, and when Paul saw them, he thanked God, and notice what happens next. Not only were the people going to be encouraged by Paul, but they're encouraging Paul. It goes both ways. It isn't a one-way street. I, I have shared with you before, I'll share with you again, I cannot tell you how often I'll be in the midst of some spiritual funk You know, I've had a rotten, horrible conglomeration of evil things that have just unfolded. And somebody that I least expect will call on the phone or send an email, just a handful of words that will remind me the Lord's still in it. Just a simple encouragement. You will never know this side of glory how many times you're the one that gives that person that little boost that they need to take that next step. And so it was for Paul. He took courage. And now when they came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So the whole lot, everybody apparently but Paul is handed over, undoubtedly goes to a Roman penal system. Now most of you have seen 
you might have seen the movie The Gladiator with Russell Crowe. I don't recommend it. It's R-rated. If you can see it on TV edited, it is uh, probably a lot better. But that's relatively accurate for life during those times. Life was miserable. Life was hard. And if you were a prisoner, you were the lowest of the low in Rome, and your life was worth nothing. And in fact, you were usually assigned to a slave galley or to work in the Colosseum to be some form of entertainment for the Roman public. And not Paul. Now, we're not told why that happened, but I think we know why it happened. Because God was still with him. God had brought him to Rome. In essence, I believe God had allowed him to be arrested, foreordained that that would even happen, and brings him to a place to where he now is going to, the, in essence, the center of the world. It would be the equivalent if somehow, some way here in this country, as Connie and the boys and I were back in Washington, D.C., whenever you go to D.C., the first thing that impresses you is this is the capital of the most powerful nation on earth. If, if you have not ever been there, I, I encourage every American at least once in their lifetime to travel to Washington, D.C. You can go see what your tax dollars have purchased. No, I'm just kidding. But it is, it's amazing. When you, when, you look, when you look at what goes on on a daily basis, literally the known world is being transformed in that city. Things that happen there happen there and nowhere else in the entire world. It is the seat of the most prosperous country. It is the seat of the most powerful country. It is the seat of government for, for those who are the policy makers, in essence, for the rest of the world. What happens here affects the entire world. If you don't believe that, look at what happens, look what's happened in the stock market since 9-11. The whole world has suffered with the United States. As our economy goes, so goes the rest of the world. That was the city Paul comes to. And Paul evidently is going to not only make a huge impact in Rome, but if there was any way to get the word out, you do it by going to Rome. If you want to be television on television, I can tell you this. Go to Washington, D.C., make a spectacle of yourself. You'll be on a bunch of TV shows. You'll be on the evening news. You can go to the steps of the Capitol building or go to the steps of the Supreme Court and stand out there and plead your case, and people will take notice. And from there, the rest of the world is going to know what you're about. That was the case with Paul. Paul's journey now brings him to house arrest, and the stage, in essence, was being set for him to minister in this influential city. And notice as these ships begin sailing, it's, the timeline is actually quite clear here because they'd waited three months. If you remember, the storms begin to blow sometime October, November. They stayed for three months, so it's now uh, mid-February to March, and the ships begin to sail north again as the winds shift. And so it makes very, very much sense that uh, this now is exactly the period of time that we would expect if they were going to be able to sail north because the rest of the winter, there is no way you get to sail north. You just can't do it. The wind is blowing down from the Alps. It blows along the Italian peninsula and blows you right to Africa. And that's pretty much the only place you could have gone up to that point. And so 
these two twins that are on here undoubtedly were Castor and Pollux. They're the twin sons of Zeus, and they were the patron saints of navigation. So here they are. They're on this boat, and so you can imagine even the Romans are kind of getting into it. Here he comes, and he's on this on this boat that's got the twin heads of the sons of Zeus, and Paul arrives on the shore, and going, who's this guy that's on the boat that's got the sons of Zeus on it? And so Paul begins to get there, and he's at the toe of Italy, and uh, interesting that the Bay of Naples is right there. And, of course, right now, if you go there, that's one of the most hot vacation spots in all of the Mediterranean. It was the vacation spot then. And so you can kind of see how he even makes it through these cities. It's like, well, who's this guy that's traveling with the Roman guards? And e- even the difficult things begin to kind of unfold as something that uh, God could use. And I want you to notice how the body of Christ responds to Paul at this time. Notice that they are actually welcoming him. There's a delegation that comes out. It seems like every place he stops, the handful of Christians, which he himself may very well have had a hand in bringing these people to Christ by sharing with the Timothys of the world and by sharing with the Epaphroditus's of the world and by ministering in other people's lives, it's kind of like uh, us Calvary guys, whenever Pastor Chuck goes someplace, there are literally millions of people around the world who have come to Christ through the ministry of Calvary Chapel. It's kind of like that with Paul. He's like the big guy. He's the number one apostle as far as evangelism is concerned, especially to the Gentile world. And, and, and it's funny how you notice here, Paul doesn't have to do a lot of work. The ground's been prepared. People have been made ready. And now he just kind of steps into his area of giftedness. Can I say to you that that is the most peaceful way to exist in ministry? I've seen an awful lot of people try and cram themselves into some form of ministry that it looks like that would be a good thing to go do. Maybe the gift of evangelism is one of those that's perhaps the most pertinent in this example. There are a lot of people who want to be evangelists, but they do not have that gift. And they go forth and they're miserable at it. And then there are people who are gifted at evangelism. They walk up, say two words, and people are on their face before God doing business with them. It takes all of the people along the way for God to work. It takes the people who plant the seed. It takes the people who water the seed. It takes the people who fertilize the seed. It takes the people who will stand there and tend the garden. It takes the people who will then go to the harvest. Paul is basically now going to this great harvest field that he himself helped plant by sending laborers into the field. And Paul wasn't having to kick the doors open. They were just simply open to him. And as the New Living Translation says, the brothers and sisters in Rome heard that they were coming, and he's using again Luke is the word we, so Luke is still with him. And they came to meet us from the forum along the Appian Way, and they joined them there. And Paul takes courage And so it seems as though God just now is just smoothing out the path. He's going to take them right in. He's going to encourage them. The Roman Christians are now stepping up to the plate and doing their part. And if you remember, this is not exactly the history of the rest of the story. The rest of the story was pretty arduous. And you have to wonder how much one person can take. Has anybody ever wondered how much more you can take? I have. You know, it's like, Lord, one more of those, and I'm just like, done. I can't take anymore. Isn't it interesting how often when, right when you get to the edge, have you ever wondered why Scripture declares 
For you will not be tempted or tested beyond what you are able to bear, but in it there's a way of escape. And that way of escape very often is just somebody to come along and take the pressure off with a word of encouragement. Some type of gift that's just perfect for that season. After a long, very hard journey, I can't imagine how thankful Paul was just to see a a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Now, as I travel around and I, you know, hop on and off planes, I, I can't tell you how many times, you know, I'll hop off of a plane and there's somebody that I either know or, you know, recognizes I, you know, I'm lugging around a Bible or something. I'll be sitting there and they'll just come over. Hey, I just noticed you're reading the Bible. I just want to, it was an encouragement to me and it encourages you. Be bold when you're out and about. You, you never know who you're going to encourage or who you'll have an opportunity to affect for the kingdom things. When we take courage, uh, we help other people to have courage. And, and the process really produces in people that Daniel-like courage who was not going to eat of the king's delicacies and he just simply was going to do what God called him to do. And so as Paul arrives, he now comes to this place to where Uh, They're gathered together, and so we pick up now in verse 17 for the rest of the chapter. And then after three days, after Paul's arrival, he called together the local Jewish leaders, and he said to them, Brothers, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Roman government, and even though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors. And so he begins to plead his case. And remember, this whole thing goes all the way back to when he supposedly defiled the temple. He's been tried three times. He's been found innocent each of the three times. He himself makes an appeal to Caesar that he is entitled as a Roman citizen to go to Rome. And and notice that from here on out, it's going to be about using this disaster for the glory of God using this difficult time for the kingdom work that God would want to do in Paul's life. And so his first act in Rome is to call together the Jewish leaders. I love that wisdom, because if Paul's going to have any friends, it's still going to be the Jews. Like it or not, whether they were wrong back in any of the other locations, the Jewish people have a heart one for another. And so he immediately will gain an audience by inviting even the people who put him in this situation in the first place. And so guess what's going to happen as he shares these truths with these Jewish leaders? They're going to go share that with everybody else that they know. And as they share it, it's reaching two totally separate audiences. It's reaching the Gentile Christian audience, and it's reaching the Jewish audience all through his house imprisonment. He wants to proclaim the gospel. He's going to meet with them, and no doubt Paul was going to give some kind of Uh, lecture on the Messiahship of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God and all of those things. And so, consequently, through all of this, because we know, because the passage tells us, Paul's going to get two years to do this in the most influential city in the world. All because he was unashamed, unafraid, and, and bold in the faith. And so, as those visitors came, all wondering what this crazy Jewish guy who's preaching Christ was doing, uh, this message went forth each time to a new group of people, and as they would share it, it's kind of like, again, I'll use the analogy of Washington, D.C., as you're there talking to people. I mean, we're talking literally with members of Congress, and, and you're sharing with them about these things. Now, they don't have a clue uh, what Running Springs is about, but... 
for some unknown reason, uh, they know that there's a bunch of Christians who pray there because they heard about us through the things that God had already sent through the rest of the guys that were meeting there with us. And so here's this little tiny town in the middle of the mountains of Southern California. We're about as, we are as diverse from Washington, D.C. as you can get. <laughs> Their bathroom attendants wear suits, okay? It's just, it's like, what do you do? Oh, I, I scrub the brass in the men's room. Suit on. Here, the only people who wear suits are dead people and me every once in a while. They're like, you're from where? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, Tony was talking. Yeah, I heard, we heard about you. Preaching Christ. So much so that Barbara Boxer canceled her appointment with me. So, you know, who knows? Could be some of those scathing emails I sent her. I'm not sure. Verse 17, and then three days after Paul's arrival, as he calls these Jewish leaders together, you see it was a decree of Claudius that had expelled the Jews from Rome, and that had happened quite a bit earlier, and here now they're all back in Rome. So uh, they're hearing this presentation, and he goes on to say, and the Romans tried me, wanted to release me, for they found no cause for the death sentence. But when the Jewish leaders protested, in other words, it was his own countrymen, remember he says there in Corinthians, that it was his own countrymen, uh, heard the decision. I felt it necessary to appeal to Caesar, even though I had no desire to press charges against my own people. In other words, he wasn't looking for payback. He was just looking to get the word out about his King Jesus. And so here he reiterates the Romans' inability or unwillingness to execute him. And so he's talking now to Jews. He's saying, look, the Romans found no reason to persecute me, but I felt like I needed to take it all the way to Rome. There was something stirred within him that caused him to do that. Can I tell you that sometimes the things that you'll do for the kingdom, you're not going to have every single mark along the way plotted out on some map. You're going to get a few of the directives. You're going to know generally what you need to do. And the plans are going to unveil themselves in the journey. All of a sudden, you're going to be sitting there in Rome going, Oh, this is why I'm here. We don't always have all the pieces. And I think a lot of that has to do with God understanding each one of us fully and completely and knows that when we know things, don't aren't we prone to mess them up? You ever notice that when you actually know what's going to happen, how somehow you can manage to mess up a sure thing? So God makes it unsure, so you don't know what to mess up. You just have to listen. You have to walk by faith and not by sight. You won't be deceiving yourself. You won't make up your own parts of the plan. You'll have to depend on him. I think very often difficulty is the chief way that we understand those things. When things are hard, you have to rely on the Lord, don't you? There's no explanation for it. You know, you're, you're sitting there in the midst of circumstances you can't control, and the first thing that you have to do is cry out to God. There's, there's no money left. There isn't anything you can do about it. You just have to cry out to God and, and then do what he tells you to do. And so here Paul, totally given the message that he's going to deliver, and he'd done nothing to deserve a death sentence, but he's going to use the time that he's here in Rome. In verse 20, he says, And I ask you to come here today. So he's now beginning to preach so that we could get acquainted. 
And so the New Living Translation says, so that I could tell you that I am bound with this chain because I believe that the hope of Israel, the Messiah, has already come. Now those are the kind of words that don't get you out of chains. That's not going to do a whole lot to further your case for freedom, as it were. He calls together the most influential Jewish leaders And then he recounts to them the very thing that they don't want to hear. That's boldness. You see, it's easy when you're in a bad situation to kind of make nice with people and fudge on the truth, right? When somebody talks to you about where you stand with Jesus Christ, oh, yeah, well, I believe in God. Notice what he says here. He's not some ethereal God. It's not some godlike figure. It's not, well, you know, everybody believes in some kind of God. He says, I believe that the hope of Israel, the Messiah, has already come. That is as bold as you can get. He's basically stating to them categorically that the long-awaited Messiah, the hope of Israel, not only has already come, but you can add the rest of it, because I'm sure word has already gotten there that this Jesus of Nazareth character was tried and put to death, buried, and they can't find him anymore. Paul wanted his countrymen to know that there was hope in Christ Jesus. Paul wanted them to understand that this relatively new entity, if you will, the Christian church, was not some kind of dangerous sect, but it was an extension of the Old Testament promise of the Messiah. He was saying, guys, we've been waiting for the Messiah since Malachi stopped writing 400 years earlier. We've been waiting for the Messiah. I'm telling you, he's already come. And of course, all that meant was that that Messiah would be of the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the completion of the covenant promises with Israel were supposed to be made manifest in this last Messiah. And they replied, I love this, we've not received any letters from Judea concerning you. In other words, where's the proof? And none of the brothers who have come from there reported or said anything bad about you. He's saying, well, we kind of knew you were coming, but we're not really sure why. But we want to hear what your views are. So God's prepped the ground. He's told them just enough to know he's coming, but hasn't told them so much that they're completely prejudiced against him. This is so totally God. Because if the enemy had had his way, by the time Paul got to Rome, his character would have been slaughtered. There would have been letter upon letter upon letter from every one of the rulers and half the bystanders, and the Sanhedrin would have sent their little tablet along with, and Paul would have stood no chance. But because God's plan all along through the storm and through the shipwreck was to get him there to preach the gospel, he even leaves open the door that should have been the easiest one to close. Because if there was an easy door to close, it was the Jewish door. That would have been simple. They're the ones that hunted him down for two years and made it so he has to, had to plead the case before Caesar. 
you, you see, if they were really all that powerful, they could have done something about this. Notice how God protects his people. God's at work in all of this. We want to hear what your views are, for we know that the people everywhere are talking against this sect. You, you see, some of the word had gotten out. And this is a beautiful picture of pretty much the world that we live in today. Because people know a little bit about Christianity. They know a little bit about Jesus. They know a little bit about what it means to be a Christian. They'll very often understand even the term born again. But they're waiting to hear from you. They want to hear from someone who professes it with boldness. They've heard from Time Magazine that Christianity is dead. They've heard from Wolf Blitzer and the guys on CNN that Christianity is going out of style. They've heard from our president a certain brand of Christianity that includes not believing the Bible's true. They've heard from the Mormons on television. We're another testament of Jesus Christ. They've heard all kinds of things. And the soil's been tilled and turned over, and they're now waiting for somebody to come along and tell them the truth about Jesus. Is that going to be you? Is that going to be me? Is that going to be the real church? Is that what we're about? Because that's why we're here. That's the reason we've been left here. People ask me all the time, well, how come a God is a God of love? Why doesn't he just take all the Christians home as soon as they get saved? Because he has work for us to do. The most common way other people come to Christ is faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And who will tell them unless you will preach? Your life is a sermon to be lived out before people. It's a message of the gospel to be shared with those around you. Including people who have heard a little bit about what this Jesus guy's about. And so the Jewish leaders hadn't heard any specific allegations about Paul, but basically they were interested in this kind of the whole story. Can you imagine how big of an open door this is? Is Paul being, well, you know, I was tried three times and they couldn't find me, and then we got sent across on this ship, and the ship broke apart on Malta, and they picked me out, and I got here, and they're, they're believing because that he's actually gotten there. He's been spared from judgment. We talked about that. Neptune and Poseidon had seen fit that he must be innocent because he's still here. Now the twin sons of Zeus have been on the masthead of the ship and makes it to Rome after all. This is a big deal to them. Do you realize that your life is a big deal to people? Because they look at your life and they go, you had what happened to you? You got cancer and God healed you? And you say that's because you have a relationship with this Jesus guy? Your, your finances fell apart and you prayed and you asked God for direction and, and God not only took care of that, but He put you into a house and you're doing okay. And that's because of this Jesus guy? You see, it becomes very real when you let it be real. You don't have to have a book of the Bible named after you to have an impact for the kingdom of Christ. 
You're just as capable as Paul. The ground is ready. The question remains as to whether we'll actually do something with the ground that's been prepared. And here these skeptical Romans kind of thought that Christians were basically a scourge. They weren't really afraid of them. After all, this is the Roman army. We'll just call a couple of legions, wipe them out, be all okay. We're good with the blood and guts thing. But as they're talking against it, all of a sudden, they're trying to figure out why in the world this guy's still here. And Paul says he's committed to a higher authority, basically, than the emperor. And so the Jews were now really put on the spot, because they were, in essence, just simply allowed to practice their religion at this point. The Roman government pretty much just put up with them. And I want to also notice that this is the danger of being religious. This is the danger of being churched and not saved. This is the danger of reading just enough of the Bible to be dangerous and never making a commitment to Christ. Because these Jewish scholars undoubtedly knew the Old Testament. Paul has just told them the Messiah of the Old Testament, the one who would be a prophet likened unto Moses and yet greater, the one who would be of the seed of David, the one who had been born of a virgin, the, the one whom Isaiah had prophesied, all these miraculous things that would happen to his life that literally the crucifixion unveiled before our eyes in Isaiah 52 and 53 and Psalm 16 and Psalm 19, all these things that these Jewish scholars knew. Paul, this converted Jew who's now a Christian, says, I, I know who this guy is. But inquiring minds still have to come to Christ by faith. There's no other way. Matter of fact, sometimes the more religion you have, the more dead you can become to truth. The more churched you are, if, you, if you're not listening with a heart and not just ears, you can become actually impeded from the truth. Verse 23 goes on, And after they had set a day to meet with him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. And so the controversy actually gives him an audience. It's kind of a weird thing to think about. But we've seen this so many times. Those controversial things that happen all of a sudden give somebody national spotlight. Let me give you one example you probably all know. His name's Chuck Colson. If you remember, he was part of President Nixon's cabinet. And he ended up going to prison for Watergate. You know what he starts? Prison Fellowship International. Now he ministers all over the world the name of Jesus. Because he went to prison. So you would look at it and go, well, you know, he lied about the cover-up of the tapes. And yep, he did. Didn't look like it was a plan for success, but it was. Because the plan was God's plan all along. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go get involved in the Watergate scandal. But I'm telling you, if something happens and you end up in a difficult spot, look for how God's going to use the difficult spot. From morning to evening, he explained the matter to them. Now, remember what he's already said, what is he explaining? The Messiah has come. 
testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. And so what a wonderful place. You know, sometimes, guys, you just have to use what you got. And if you got somebody who's maybe they're a radical environmentalist, so you talk to them about the creation. Maybe they're crazy bent on science. So you talk to them about, well, how did that seed of the universe actually get there? What came first, the chicken or the egg? There's always ways to engage people with the truths of what Scripture says. There are always ways. I don't care who they are. They've got some thing that they want to know that they don't have answers for. And you can find a way to relate Scripture to that. That's all you need to do. It's just simply an open door. About Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So from the Pentateuch to the prophets, doesn't matter. It was all about Jesus. All the way from the Garden of Eden, and why did God have to clothe Adam in an animal skin? Why did an innocent have to die for the sins of man? He could have started all the way in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. He certainly could have used the Psalms of David. He absolutely could have been pointing them to the prophet Isaiah, who spoke more about the Messiah, really, in detail, than any other author of the, of the entire Bible. And, of course, we know that because of the quotations of Paul in the New Testament that his favorite author was the prophet Isaiah. He probably had most of Isaiah memorized. And so he he looked at him and says, Guys, you remember there when the prophet Isaiah was talking about the child who would be born and the son who would be given and the one who would be the seed, but he would crush the head of the serpent? You remember that guy? I met him on the road to Damascus. You remember when he said that he would be mm, the wonderful, the counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, and oh yeah, the Father of Eternal Life? He's already been here. You see, he could have taken the Old Testament to to validate, in essence, what he'd already experienced in his life. And some were convinced by what he said, while others refuse to believe. Remember that salvation is by faith. And I can tell you, because I've, I've had some long-running, uh, very highly intelligent conversations, more from the other person's side than mine, but very, very in-depth conversations. Doctors, scientists, Physicists, I have talked to all kinds of people via the Internet about faith. And some have been convinced. And some hearing virtually the same argument, the same data set, all of it, have just, well, you know, I just, no, I can't believe that. People never disbelieve because of lack of evidence. They disbelieve because of lack of faith. Make no mistake about it. Because if you can talk somebody into the kingdom through persuasive argument, then they did not come by faith. And you're saved by faith. You're not saved by persuasive arguments. You may be encouraged to pray and to seek faith through the argument, but you're not saved because someone wins an argument. You're just there to present the case. The results are up to God. 
The question is, will you present the case? Some are going to refuse. Some of those people may be people that you love very, very deeply and dearly. They could be your own family members. It's always kind of a shock to me when people look at my life, they know how I used to be, and they look at who I am today, and they cannot help but after 20-plus years of walking faithfully with the Lord and being in ministry, they know there's something different. That is not possible that they could miss that. But they still attribute it. Well, you know, you're just deluded. You know, it's a mass hallucination of some kind. You know, other people are deluded too. It's a crutch. You've heard that one, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, Christians, yeah, that's a crutch. The strongest people I know on this earth are Christians. Without question. And some of the most intelligent people I know, also Christians. It's not about any of those things. It's about faith. And so here Paul reminds the Jews of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. He's given them all the details from those writings. In verse 28, And they disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul made his final statement. And so they're not even together. Don't underestimate the power of reaching one in a group of 50. Don't underestimate the power of reaching one in a group of 50. You know, sometimes, and and I've had this happen, especially as I'm ministering to youth and we'll do youth outreach events or whatever. And, you know, every once in a while, the Lord will put it on my heart, just do an altar call. You know, it's not a lot of fun when you preach an evangelical message and you... You know, you ask people if they would like to give their life to Christ, and you believe the Holy Spirit's been ministering, and not one person gets up. And then for another, you're praying, Lord, please let somebody be here that needs to hear this message. And all of a sudden, one person comes. And from that one person, I've had it happen where virtually the entire sanctuary at the, at the chapel, after 10 minutes of waiting on the Lord, there's not one person that's come forward to receive Jesus. But after 10 minutes, after one person comes forward, Two-thirds of the sanctuary is emptied, and people are on their face rededicating their life to the Lord. That's a work of God. But sometimes it takes the one to reach the rest of the group. And sometimes it doesn't happen that day. Maybe it's another day. Maybe you're simply opening the door for someone else to come and uh, be the one that sees that person come to Christ. And Paul makes his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through, the, through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, and now notice, this is, this is pretty harsh when you think about it. This would be pretty tough to hear if you happen to be a person who was a Jew. He said, Your father spoke the truth when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to these people and say, You'll never, ever be hearing, but you'll, you're, excuse me, you'll, you'll be hearing, but you'll never understand. You'll, you will ever be seeing, but never perceiving. In other words, you're going to be totally blind. You're, you're going to see the truth. You're going to know the truth. It's going to be right in front of your face. It won't be for lack of a persuasive argument. You're going to see it. You're going to hear it. And you're still not going to believe it. It's all going to unfa- unfold right before your eyes. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They've closed their eyes. Or otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Talk about a strong rebuke. Guys, you've been hearing the same message for 1,600 years. You knew 
who this Jesus was. How could you possibly be chanting, give us Barabbas, when the very word of God which you hold dear, you won't even use his name, says that he would stand and not give an account of his own wrong. And he did it. That not a bone of his would be broken. Your father David said that. You can imagine what Paul could have added for influence here. But rather than submitting to that judgment of truth, they sat in judgment of the truth. And that's what people do. You tell them the truth, it's not your job for them to distinguish it. It's your job to tell them the truth. They have to do something with it. And so I want you to realize, verse 28 says, that this salvation from God is also available to the Gentiles, and they will accept it. It's going... Why do you think Jesus stood on the Temple Mount and he said, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, I would gather you unto myself as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not come. You who killed the prophets. You see, he was just reminding them what Jesus told them. He said, You knew what I said. God had already told you what the Messiah would do, told you the Messiah would die. David declared that no grave would hold him, that Sheol wasn't going to be able to hang on to Jesus. And so Paul in this situation makes the very best of what looks like a tragic situation. Verse 29, And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute amongst themselves. Ah, I'm guessing so. You know, because in every crowd, there's almost always somebody that God's trying to really, really work on. And very often they're kind of the catalyst to stir up a few more people. It's amazing to me how many people you, you turn around and all of a sudden there they are. We've, we've had that so many times in this church. Every once in a while we'll have somebody still storm out of here. Oh, I can't believe in that narrow way. I can't believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation. You keep telling me Jesus is the only way of salvation. Now I'm not telling you that. He told you that. I'm just giving you the message. He himself said, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Paul went on to say that there is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what the Bible says. And they storm out and they go off to their you know, new cult that allows them to have unlimited amounts of drugs and alcohol and worship trees, and, and live on Twinkies. It's a very popular cult. But maybe they come back a few years later and their life has come unglued. And they're those same few hundred people who are just loving Jesus and loving each other, and they know it's true. They couldn't believe it the first time, but they very often believe it the second, the third, or the fiftieth time. I often wonder how many deathbed conversions are the result of decades of other people praying and living out Christ in front of those people. Are you going to do it? Are we going to do it? Amen. And for the next two years, Paul lived in his own rented house. And he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God with all boldness and teaching them about the Lord Jesus 
and no one tried to stop him. And so here this abrupt end, it just done, it's over. We, we don't hear a lot of details. But I think it's that way for a reason. I think, you know, Luke doesn't give us a, a, an account of the trial before Caesar, even though Luke would have been a very detailed chronicler of those events. He, he would have certainly had an eye for the detail. He was a doctor. The prosecution had lasted two years. The time ran out. But I want you to notice something, and it's very often missed, that it's during this two years that Paul writes to the Philippians, he writes to the Roman Christians, he writes to the Ephesians, he writes those books that we call the church at Colossae, the prison epistles. During that time when he's being in essence encouraged by other people and encouraging others in the Lord, he's busy about his father's business. In essence, he's freed from everyday life. He's actually being taken care of. He's able to minister in a very free way because he's actually imprisoned. God sets up a circumstance. I'm kind of like this in a lot of ways. If I'm going to get anything done, I kind of have to be imprisoned. So I have to go in my office and, and... I'm, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm like, like in, in which movie is that? Squirrel! You know, it's <laughs> like, the, yeah, up. <laughs> the dog's sitting there, he's talking and all of a sudden, yeah, squirrel. <laughs> it goes running by. That's the way I am. I kind of have to be in prison sometimes in order to get anything done. You know, sometimes those prisons are actually freedom, aren't they? Sometimes those difficulties are actually freedoms, aren't they? You're freed from the bondage of those things. So many times I've talked to people, oh, God, just allowed everything to be stripped away. He stripped that stuff away to free you, to make you available, to pull out the roots that are tying you to this earth, uh, to give you a place that you could minister that you probably wouldn't have chosen for yourself. And so here he speaks with all boldness, and no one tries to stop him. The Greek word that's used there for, for all boldness, actually the words that we have translated all boldness, it actually says without hindrance. In other words, he was so free that he was completely unhindered. It's like he did whatever he wanted to do for the glory of God because he was imprisoned. And so here the... History of the early church has kind of unfolded for us in the book of Acts. And because of this, the work of Stephen and James and Paul and all the authors of the, of the New Testament, when you, when you look at what happens, almost every one of them was affected by the life of Paul. There's hardly a one that didn't come in contact with him at some point in time. And in essence, I think it ends abruptly for this reason. It's a continuing story. It didn't end. It wasn't like, okay, this is the end of the Acts of the Apostles. Because they're ongoing through you. They're ongoing through the church and have been since that day to this day. The story is still being written. You know, the story of the of the great works that God is doing on this earth right now could be extra chapters of the book of Acts. You see that? This church is a a little tiny window. You know, as Paul wrote, wouldn't it be weird 
if God actually had a book that's kind of the rest of the story, and there it is, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, and there's the saints at Running Springs. And, and you know, there's the, there's the church in Ecuador. You know, you, you, you see, it really wasn't designed to end until the Lord Jesus comes back for his church. Then the end of this book will happen. The church will forever be in the glory of the Lord. But until then, you guys are a living letter. You guys are part of God's marvelous plan to reach the lost while we're still here on this earth. And whether you're in prison in Rome or you're in prison in your house because you have two toddlers or whether you're in prison in that job after 20-something years or whether you're in prison at school or whether you're imprisoned by the 3.30, it's an opportunity to preach Jesus, amen, wherever you go. So be a part of the rest of the story, amen? We're going to be moving on, topical series coming up through the summer, uh, Foundations of Faith and Family. Uh, should be a fun time. We're going to take a whole bunch of topics. I haven't quite completed the list. Uh, show up next Wednesday for part one. I'll probably give you an outline of what will lie in store for the next probably three or four months, something like that, as we spend some time just going through the scriptures and uh, take some topics and look at what God has to say. So let's pray. Father God, tonight, we thank you, Lord, that you kind of grafted us into this marvelous story, that, Lord, uh, our names would be right alongside of Paul. Maybe we would be some of the Christians who came down the road to greet him as he pulled up to three taverns. Maybe we would be some of those saints that met him as he was shipwrecked there on Malta or perhaps gave him aid to find the boat that traveled along the coast. Lord, let us play our part and play it with zeal and boldness. And we pray that you'd bless us, Lord, as we endeavor to serve you in these last days. God, that our lives would count for something for Jesus. We bless you, Lord. We're so grateful for the power of your word to encourage us and strengthen us through the life of this great apostle. And Lord, through Peter and James and John and Stephen and Andrew, Matthew, Lord, we're just blessed that we have their lives to look back on. May our lives also be able to be looked back on, should you tarry, as ones who gave their all for you. We bless you. We thank you for tonight. Wait, you just get us safely home, Lord. Give us some divine appointments wherever we go. We bless you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, gang.